Welcome to Inspiring Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by the British Medical Association. I'm Martin McKee, a Professor of Public Health and the President of the BMA. In this series, I'm joined by people who I see as role models. They've successfully taken their medical knowledge to a wider audience in creative ways. So what inspired their work? What lessons have they learned? And what advice do they have for young doctors who may want to follow in their footsteps? There is something magical about the confluence of medicine and communication. My interviewees are only some of the role models who do this work, but they're all people who have inspired me. I hope that our conversations will, in turn, inspire you. My guest today is Sir Nick Black. Nick trained in medicine at the University of Birmingham and worked initially in paediatrics, including a period in Nepal with Save the Children. He then moved into public health in the Oxford region before working at the Open University, where he designed a highly praised course on health and disease. In 1985, when I first met him, he moved to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's perhaps best known for his leadership in the field of health services research, contributing in many ways to its emergence as a distinct area of scholarship. But he also has a keen interest in history, which is what we will talk about today. This interest stimulated him to write a fascinating guidebook entitled Walking London's Medical History, and more recently, his first novel, The Honourable Doctor, a tale based on a true story of intrigue and nepotism in the medical establishment in 19th century England. Welcome, Nick. Hello. I'd like to start with a question that is always asked of people who move into public health. You could have stayed in paediatrics, but you didn't. What was it that led you to change direction? Well, I've often thought about this, and I think there are two things to say. The first is that as a medical student, I was fortunate to go to Birmingham University in the last few years that Tom McEwen, the great doyen of public health, was teaching. And after all the clinical teaching we'd heard, McEwen turned up and completely turned the tables and suggested radically different interpretations of why the health of the population had improved so dramatically, particularly throughout the 20th century. And I found this fascinating as to this contrast from the almost universal view we'd had from our clinical teachers. And that, I suppose, was probably working on my own natural iconoclasm and questioning. And then it all came together when I went, as you mentioned, to work for Save the Children Fund in Nepal for 18 months. And I found myself thrust into a position of running a project with about 30 staff, mostly local people. And essentially what I was doing was management and policy making. And looking back, it was actually about transformation of services. I was trying to shift the emphasis from the central clinic out into the villages. And I also did a survey, epidemiological survey of child health. And at some point, I had to make the decision, do I come back and go into paediatrics, for which I had a, a job offer? Uh, but by then, I realised what I really needed to do was to learn 
to do what I'd been doing, but properly. So I was sort of teaching myself epidemiology, management, policy making, and I recognized that this was a little bit reckless. I ought to go and, and get myself properly trained. So I came back and I made the life-changing decision to switch from clinical, which I'd always enjoyed and would have been happy being a pediatrician, I'm sure, to public health and then specifically into health services. Yes, it's strange, isn't it? Because I can remember being a medical registrar and reorganizing clinics and again, making use of many of the techniques that I would later learn about from our, our mutual colleague, Colin Sanderson. Uh, but of course, I didn't know about queuing theory and operational research at that time, but I was sort of struggling to apply it. And it was only when I came to the school with you that I really understood what I was actually doing. Well, you once said that the person you'd like to thank most was someone called Peter Watkins, your history teacher at school. Can you say more about how history has influenced your approach to medicine? And here I'd make reference maybe to your teaching because you've often brought a historical element into it. Yes. Peter Watkins' effect on me, again with hindsight as a 16-year-old doing O-level American history, I wasn't aware of the changes that I was uh, experiencing intellectually. And it was a bit like the McEwen effect on me, because what this inspirational teacher taught us was that there was a very different view could be taken interpreting the past. Just one example. What was actually the cause of the American Civil War? Well, like everybody else, certainly at that time, it was about um, the good guys who were against slavery and the bad guys in the South who wanted to maintain slavery. Well, what he showed us was that, in fact, it wasn't that, that was part of it. But the main thing was the southern states wanted to retain their independence of Washington and the northern states wanted a federal approach. You might notice some similarities with Brexit discussions there. But actually, that's what really lay behind it. Uh, the slavery issue was obviously of vital importance. And so looking back, I think what, what I got from Peter Watkins was my very first exposure to social science. It wasn't called that. It was called history, as I imagine social science may actually be labelled and taught in schools today. But back in the 1960s, it wasn't. And so from then on, I always had an interest in history and coming more up to date. I think it was the realization that whilst we accept that if you want to uh, understand and improve healthcare and health systems, there are many disciplines that need to be brought to bear. But I was conscious there was rather little attention paid to the contribution of history. And of course, we always have that famous quotation from Santayana, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. But your first major foray into writing was, I think, at the Open University. And it was in the early 1980s when multidisciplinary work was much less common than it is now. How well do you think that your medical training prepared you for that experience? I don't think my undergraduate medical training contributed much. I don't say that critically, because I think undergraduate medical training, the task is to take a lot of gen usually young people who want to be doctors, and we as a society want them to be doctors, and they need to 
focus on the preclinical subjects and then clinical medicine, and that's fine. I'm not somebody who advocates that, that undergraduates should be exposed to a lot more about management and policy. I think that comes later. Uh, so, but my postgraduate education uh, absolutely uh, expanded my horizons. So with this background of having worked for Save the Children Fund and become aware of how there's a lot more to providing good health care than what we might call narrowly medicine and medical knowledge, I didn't know much about those other areas. And my public health training uh, provided me with my first uh, understanding of the other key disciplines such as economics, sociology, um, and so on. And so that certainly provided me. And I was really fortunate as a we now call the specialist registrar in public health to be attached and spent three years in with the department of what was then called community medicine in Oxford, which was stuffed full of brilliant people from different disciplines and just having the privilege as a young researcher setting out to be exposed to those people uh, was was incredibly important for the rest of my career. Now, when you were at the Open University, of course, you were working with some remarkable people. I'm thinking of people like Phil Strong, for example, who I know had a major influence on your life. So I was wondering if you could help us to understand how that engagement with people from a broader range of disciplines has shaped your work subsequently. Yes, and again, I keep going back to McEwen, to Watkins, my history teacher. These were all people who disrupted me and shook me out of the certainty. I mean, when we're training doctors, medical students, we have to impart a high degree of certainty because you can't function and be useful to patients if you can't be pretty certain. That's not to be you're not thoughtful, doesn't mean you become, or you shouldn't become arrogant, but doctors are no use if they spend a lot of time worrying for hours about what's the right diagnosis. They have to be taught how to make quick decisions, most obviously in an area such as um, an emergency department. Obviously in other areas, thinking of things like psychiatry or care of the elderly, one can spend much longer thinking about a patient's problems and understanding them. But what um, people like Phil Strong and Alastair Gray, an economist, uh, and Stephen Rose, a biologist, uh, these were the people I worked with at the Open University, what they did was to shake me out of any certainty I might have brought to the table from a background in medicine. And particularly sociology. Uh, I remember I, I started going to the Medical Sociology Association meetings and I was almost drowning because what I was hearing, trying to make sense of it, where there's a, at that time, uh, this was sort of height of uh, feminist sociology. Fine, that was great. But the high degree of relativism almost a pole opposite to the certainty of the sort of positivist medicine and trying to make come to terms with this and understand 
how, how does this work? How can we bring these things together? I suppose some people might have just walked away and said, it's a load of nonsense. I'm having nothing to do with it. I'm interested in healthcare. To me, I wanted to understand it and see how it could be brought together and brought to bear on healthcare because I could see that it actually had answers. So, for example, when I did my doctorate in Oxford, where I was looking at the epidemic of surgery for glue air in children, which had become the commonest operation in children, it provided me with the framework to actually start by questioning what is gluia? Almost not to the point of does it exist, because I know that it does exist, but what is going on here? Why are so many more children being diagnosed with it? Where is this need coming from? To what extent is it a social construct? So it's very different from the medical view of my ENT colleagues who I was working with, um, and actually very different from the patient's parents who saw it absolutely as a medical condition in black and white. And in fact, my doctorate, what I then tried to show was actually this was very uncertain what was going on. And of course, that reminds us that all knowledge is contingent. It's constantly changing, but also so often in our everyday engagement with other people, we find that we're using words in a particular way and they're using it in a different way. And we're often talking past one another. Yes, yeah, so it was also going back to history. It was also the first time I did any historical research because when I looked back at this term, glue ear, which is quite a good one because it's very graphic, it gives the idea that there is a gluey-like substance in the, in the middle ear, which is quite a good description of what's happening. What I couldn't understand is the clinicians Generally, they believed this was a relatively new condition that had appeared in perhaps the 1950s and was getting more and more common. So there's a classic, almost clinical epidemiological view. But when I looked back through endless ENT textbooks, going back to um, William Wilde's Diseases of the Ear, back in as Oscar Wilde's father, uh, who also had a, a turn of phrase, you can see where Oscar got it from, he, um, what I found was, I think I came up, I forget exactly, but something like 60 different names. When you looked at what the symptoms were, this was the same condition. This was not a new condition. That was completely socially constructed by those who wanted to believe it was something new. But it'd been there from way back since the start of medical textbooks in the mid 19th century. And so that fascinated me as well, that a condition could change names so often. And each time it was then believed it was a new condition. This reminds me of my favourite philosopher, Lewis Carroll, who famously had Humpty Dumpty say, words mean what I choose them to mean, neither more nor less. I'd like to move on to your book on walking London's medical history. What stimulated you to write it? And why did you choose the unusual format, perhaps for a, for a doctor, of guided walks as opposed to a more traditional history book? Well, this was about, well, was about 20 years ago, and i fortunate to have the privilege of academia having a, a sabbatical. And um, at that point, I'd become more and more convinced 
that the discipline that could help contemporary policymaking and reimagining healthcare was history, that it played virtually no part in shaping contemporary thinking. And I thought, well, I'm not a historian. And also, I don't want to write, and there have been lots of books on the history of medicine. Obviously, I was interested in healthcare, uh, but some of those so-called books of history of medicine are actually history of healthcare. They're much wider than what doctors have contributed, but that doctors have dominated the story. And so I didn't feel I had the right background to write a history of healthcare policy, but also I thought it's with all respect to historian colleagues, another book, worthy book to gather some nice reviews and, and, and then gather dust on the shelves. All the way through my career, I suppose the underlying theme has been wanting to increase public understanding of healthcare, because I firmly believe the more the public understand the nature of health and disease and what healthcare can and can't do, the easier it will be to create uh, the sorts of healthcare systems I believe we ought to have in sorts of healthcare. So how do you communicate with the public? They don't want to read a rather worthy but dull historical account. And that's when I hit upon the idea, uh, and it was only about three months into the data gathering, of doing it as a series of walks. The other reason behind it was I had a long-standing interest in both the history of London um, and the architecture of London. So this allowed me, because it was going to look at all at, at the buildings where key events took place, uh, and it, it was fantastic. It meant that I had license to spend my life in archives, in looking at old maps, uh, walking around London, exploring parts of London I'd never been to, uh, finding to my delight buildings that nobody else seemed to know. For instance, one example, the Middlesex Hospital, recently demolished, uh, that's the building people will think of, which was actually about the second or third generation of the building on that site. The Middlesex Hospital didn't start on that site. It started in a small road which runs just off Tottenham Court Road, and it was in three Georgian houses. But what's so exciting is two of the houses still exist. There is no indication on those buildings that that was the original Middlesex Hospital. People walk past it all the time and have no idea. And I found that just, it was like a finding hidden treasure. So are you now going to be spending your time nailing blue plaques to walls? I'll leave that to others. You write about London in, in your guidebook as being at the centre of many of the debates that have shaped healthcare today. But you also cite a long list of influences from elsewhere in Europe, voluntary hospitals from France, including the first one in London, the French Huguenot Hospital opened in 1718, the medical societies from Italy, postgraduate training from Vienna and nursing sisterhoods from Germany. You discuss this rich exchange of ideas at a time when foreign travel was much less common than today. In fact, I think it was, Disraeli was the first Prime Minister ever to actually leave the country during his uh, term of office. And it was a time when we didn't have the internet or even the telephone. 
So how do you think that our own health policy is currently shaped by international developments and innovation? Do you think that our politicians have enough awareness of what's happening elsewhere? I think the answer is yes and no. I'll explain why. Um, at times, I feel their attention to what is going on in other countries has proved um, quite harmful. I'm thinking particularly of a period, for instance, during the 1990s, it probably was, when we had uh, governments of both the main parties who were besotted by American healthcare, sort of promoted by big private management consultancies. Uh, secretaries of state became convinced that here was the answer. Are we going to ship it in from Minnesota or from California or wherever? Uh, and my personal view is that that not only contributed very little or nothing, it actually was quite harmful and slowed things down in the direction they should have been going. So in that sense, attention abroad, uh, you could say, has actually been too much. It's also very selective, the way it's used. So frequently, and this still this goes on, and I'm sure it'll go on in the coming years, uh, somebody, a Secretary of State or a Shadow Secretary of State for Health, will stand up in Parliament and extol the virtues of the French healthcare system. Now, there are many good things about the French healthcare system, but what they won't probably acknowledge is that in certainly the last 12 months, doctors in France have been on strike. Now, if you said that to most, most politicians, let alone the public, are blissfully unaware of that. And for the same reasons that we've got junior doctor strikes here today um, over terms and conditions and, 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 and pay and so on. So that's, it's had too much attention. On the other hand, the other side of it is much more considered knowledge and understanding of how things are done in other countries can be, has been, but, but probably a lot more could be beneficial to our own healthcare policy thinking. But it needs to be more sophisticated and also, of course, understanding the context, because what works in France or Germany or Italy won't necessarily work here. Well, it's certainly true and something that's kept me going for many years. And I'm often reminded of the case of a British Secretary of State who went to Spain and came back thinking that what he saw in the Abril report there was a, a great idea, except that his Spanish colleague said, uh, well, yes, indeed, it is a good idea, but we actually got it from you. The only difference is that for us, the trade unions have got a much greater role. I was struck with so many parallels with the present in your guidebook. Uh, you describe, and we've mentioned the Middlesex Hospital already, how it reduced the rations of its staff and it cut back on the number of leeches that were used during the financial problems that England was experiencing during the Napoleonic Wars. Now, its problems were partially alleviated by immigrants, in that case, the French clerics who were fleeing the terror and paying for their care here. So I wondered if there are other examples that you felt from your walks around London that were especially prescient today. I think there are lots. And if you go back and um, look look at that book, you will almost on every page there is something. I mean, you mentioned the leeches. The other interesting thing with that example, it was that Napoleonic Wars had closed the English Channel, basically, so that 
And for some reason, which I've never come across the explanation, we depended here in, in Britain on French leeches. I never quite understood why we didn't breed our own leeches, um, but perhaps somebody can enlighten me. Anyway, that's how it was. So it was this lack of leeches. It wasn't just financial problems, but one of the solutions was the reuse of leeches. Up until the Napoleonic War and the supply being cut off, leeches were single use. They'd be used, they'd suck blood out of somebody, and then they'd be destroyed, which seems extraordinary why that was the policy. Um, well, with that lack of it, suddenly, overnight, oh, it was all right. You could actually just let the leech digest the blood, and then I don't know how long it would take, hours or days, before it was ready to be reused. It's pre-germ theory, but there wouldn't have been any great danger of, of, of infection. Um, and that, to me, tells me something that is very pertinent today, and we've seen examples during the pandemic, that in extreme times, those, yes, they are very testing for healthcare and health services. Everybody's aware of that over the last few years. But it's also a wonderful opportunity because the system can really be disrupted at these moments. So, for instance, we've seen it in the last few years with the much greater use of remote consultations. Now, of course, for some patients, particularly some elderly patients, face-to-face -face consultations in, in general practice um, are highly valued and are beneficial. But until the pandemic, what we were being told by our clinical colleagues was, oh, the highest we could go was 20% or something. And suddenly overnight, we're doing 80% and the sky wasn't falling in. Now, what the right percentage is, we can you know, discuss. Um, so I think that the leeches were a great example of take advantage of these moments of crisis, because that's when you can shake the place up and disrupt and introduce radically new ways of doing things. And in this series, we will be talking to Dom Pimenta and Rachel Clark, both of whom have written books about their experience in the pandemic and who have some very good examples of this. And in Dom's case, he set up a charity to source PPE, but also address this issue of the, the reuse of PPE, a lot of which was uh, being used and then discarded. Now, you also write in your guidebook, and I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's a, a fantastic resource. But you talk about how healthcare has is and always has been an industry. And in that case, in the historical episodes, you pointed to unscrupulous clerics who were running medieval hospitals, the masters of private madhouses, and the proprietors of private anatomy theatres. Looking at that more unscrupulous, dubious behaviour, I wonder what lessons we can draw for today from what you observed in those less well-regulated times. Yes, now those are... Those are fairly extreme examples, but I think what's much more widespread is the sense that very often in management of healthcare and trying to improve its quality, we run up against intransigence and a reluctance to change uh, and improve. And I think what we can learn, what I have learnt, 
And I say this as somebody who spent the best part of 30 years working in the area of better ways of assessing quality of, of doctors and hospitals and health centres, uh, with a view to then holding those providers accountable through quantitative measures of quality, is that whilst those approaches have clearly had quite a lot of benefit, and one can point to some really great improvements in quality, at the end of the day, the only way that we're going to have high-quality care is if the professions, and medicine in particular, though not exclusively, the other professions have a responsibility as well, if they adhere to a strong ethos and that their motivation is first and foremost to the patient and to doing what is best for the patient. So I, I take the those unscrupulous people running private madhouses as the extreme of non-professional behaviour. Um, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that that sort of behaviour is widespread uh, in modern healthcare. But what is very common is something far less extreme but actually has is the impediment to achieving. And at the end of the day, however clever we are in measuring quality, in quality improvement measures brought in, in incentives, in regulation, all sorts of things that we do to try and improve quality, the reason that it's only ever going to be limited is because we'll only get improvements in quality if the people delivering the service want to deliver high quality, and that depends on their professional ethos. Indeed. Before we move on to your latest novel, which I will do in a minute, I just wanted to ask you one question about the resources that you used. You drew very extensively on the archives of many medical organisations and uh, I have to say, I've got great admiration for your ability to find these archives, but I just wonder if we value archivists enough. No, of course we don't. Um, but I'd also say there's a contrast, if it, from my experience, between this country and the USA. Whatever one might think about the US, and everybody's got their opinions, and well aware that not everybody is a, a huge fan of America, I have to say, their academic um, support for archives and historical records is fantastic. So if you want to take a simple example, if you want to read The Lancet going back to 1823 for free, Elsevier won't thank me for this, you do not have to buy uh, each article <laughs> at whatever they charge. There's a thing called the Hathi Trust. You'll find it on the internet and it will give you free access to every volume. And you can turn the pages and you can look at everything and you can then extract articles, whatever you want. I'm not sure who pays who the Hathi Trust is, but there it is. It's somewhere in the academic firmament in the US. Um, American universities are incredibly generous with their digitization of British books. It's not just American sources. 
there's virtually nothing in this country that is that, that comes free, which is sort of ironic given the you know the big different political difference between the two countries. You'd have thought that this country would have been more generous. Instead, going back to your question, the archivists, the actual individuals, well, anybody who's gone looking for hospital archives, you know, you know where you'll find them. You'll find them in an unlit basement <laughs> with all the old books piled high to the ceiling, uh, dusty, and, um, and you'd have to go digging away. Uh, and with the best will in the world, you know, the archivists do their best, but they're, they're not um, particularly well supported. I'd I say the other thing is, of course, the sort of research I did for the History Walks book, um, and then more recently, has all been in the 21st century. Go back before 2000, and um, or go back to no internet, or the early days of the internet, uh, you wouldn't get very far. You'd have to literally go and visit all these buildings, whereas now you can virtually just sit at home and get every historical source you want. There's very little that you actually need to go out and go to archives for. And there are so many gems in that. I always remember one article from the Lancet from the 1850s when I was doing some work on outpatient clinics and uh, they described a situation in which hundreds of people were seen each morning uh, dispensed a dose of doubtful physics almost at random, if I remember the quotation, and one wondered if much had actually changed. Now, I really want to turn to your new novel, the book, The Honourable Doctor. And for those who haven't read it, and again, I can highly recommend it, it's based on the true story of a young apothecary apprentice, James Lambert. Now, James travelled from the Fens to London to serve his time as a medical pupil at the Borough Hospitals. He's shocked by the actions of one of the pillars of the medical establishment and decides that he can't remain silent. Now, I'm not going to spoil the plot for those of you who haven't read it, but I think we can all say that it doesn't end very well for James. Now, when you wrote it, you had to imagine a lot of dialogue that I suspect wasn't present in the archive. There's the obviously personal talk, such as that with his girlfriend and later wife, Eliza but also the political discussions that his uncle engaged with his friends about. And much of that refers to contemporary issues like the Corn Laws. So how did you come up with that dialogue? This is, um, I see this as almost the, well, not the final, um, but my latest step in going back to what I was saying about trying to improve public understanding of healthcare. And I see it as a progression from the Open University Health and Disease course, which obviously was for highly selected people who chose to take that course as undergraduates at the Open University, but a very wide number and tens of thousands took it over the years. Then through to the History Walks books, which was another step, but explicitly about healthcare policy. And then I felt, well, Perhaps one needs to go further to engage some members of the public and move into fiction, um, but based on true events. So the novel, as you say, all the events are true, but they have to be interpreted and, and strung together, and that's the imagination. So it is fiction. Um, not everything in it is absolutely true. Uh, I'll give you one example without giving anything away about book Thomas uh, Wakeley, 
the founding editor of The Lancet. Um, I actually have him smoking a pipe and drinking. He was actually rather abstemious and he neither smoked nor drank. Uh, so don't take it all as gospel, but um, it's for effect and to create um, a sort of atmosphere. In fact, most people did smoke. Most men did smoke pipes and drink. Um, so the key thing with historical fiction, and I only learned this as I did it, is that you are asking the reader both to accept it's a novel and it's fictional, so to an element made up, but also you're telling them it's a true story in the sense it's based on true events. How do you... You've got to earn the credibility on that. And the the way you do that... Uh, this isn't me. I was from reading about historical fiction. I learned this is by having very accurate historical context. That's what gives the novel the credibility. So things like what was going on with the Corn Rolls, uh, what was going on with, with Peterloo and the, and, and the um, uprising of the um, mill workers and so on. Um, and so to do the book, I learned quite quickly. I, the way I did it was I did all the research on the story, which is largely from the archive records of the Middlesex Hospital, from the Lancet, and so on. So I had the story of James, which I still find an incredible story that nobody has ever heard of James Lambert. I hadn't. I've never met anybody who's ever heard of him. And yet he was, I believe, a really important character in the history of modernizing healthcare. Um, and then I realized, to put it into context, I've got to learn about the Regency period. The Regency period is fascinating. It's really the start of the modern state. Before the Regency period, we're talking sort of 1810s, 20s, government, society is quite different from the modern state, but something recognisable to us today starts in about 1820s, 1830, uh, has been referred to as the Regency Revolution. And it's not just in governance and in healthcare, it's in science, it's in road building and engineering, it's in literature, it's in fine art, you know, whether it's John Constable or Jane Austen. It was an extraordinary period and it affected healthcare as well. And this doesn't seem to have been paid attention to. So, so that's how I, I just by uh, extensive reading, I didn't, know, you know, like, like you, you, you may know more about it than I did, but I, you know, of course I'd heard of the Corn Rules. I was aware that they were highly controversial, but I didn't actually understand exactly who was arguing for what. And it was actually very complicated as to who were the, beneficiaries and who had the adverse effect of the Cornwall. So I had to read a lot about that period and uh, before I could put the healthcare story of James Lambert in context. Well, it is certainly very complicated with uh, the names of political parties changing and with splits in political parties. 
So uh, I, I don't envy you that. Uh, in fact, and, uh, Richard Horton was in one of our previous episodes in this series. And of course, he is the current editor-in-chief of The Lancet. Pointed out to me that they pronounce him Wackley rather than Wakely because I had uh, I had pronounced him Wakely up until then. Well, I, I pronounced it Wackley until recently, but I've been doing some more research on him and... He doesn't actually have any direct descendants, but there are some descendants from Thomas Wakeley's siblings, and they call themselves Wakeley. They're adamant about it. Now, that doesn't mean that Thomas pronounced it that way back in 1810s, 20s, uh, but the descendants of the family are adamant it's Wakeley, not Wackley. At the George, <laughs> you cook whichever you want. We have already identified a medical controversy in uh, in this series. Uh, I was going to say that you're not the first person to attribute bad habits to somebody falsely because uh, in the movie A Beautiful Mind, the mathematician John Nash smokes throughout it. But in fact, he was quite a militant anti-smoker and once reputedly threw somebody out of his windows for smoking in his room. Now... Among the many characters and organisations in your novel, we had a lot of coverage of the Society of Apothecaries, and it doesn't really come out of the story particularly well. Today, the General Medical Council has also faced considerable criticism, and here I have to declare an interest, as I've written rather critically about its accountability, and it's made a number of decisions that have provoked considerable controversy. So does your story hold lessons for the regulators of today? Yes, but I think they are they are ones that a lot of people already recognise. I, I should declare an interest here as well that I am not a great fan of regulation as a means of either assuring or improving quality of care. The evidence just is not there that it works. And this is true of other sectors as well. And of course, we've seen some uh, the dreadful consequences with Ofsted recently in in, in um, education sector. Um, that's not to say that I'm against all regulation. I think you can't let anybody just set up and say, I'm a doctor or I'm a nurse. So clearly there's got to be some professional regulation on entry. But the idea that you can improve care through regulation is very attractive to particularly politicians and to parts of the media and to the public. Uh, but there's little evidence uh, of, of, of its value. So I would go for very um, light touch regulation, minimal regulation to make sure that the public is actually protected from mountebanks and charlatans but um, I, I don't think that we've actually got moved on very much. If anything, there's more regulation today than there was then. Because strictly, the Society of Apothecaries was equivalent to a royal college. Its job was to set an exam and, and control entry, um, in that case, to apothecaries. And you had surgeons and physicians as well. So strictly, they they weren't a regulator in the modern sense. But Yes, yeah, so I, I think minimal regulation and that the royal colleges who do sometimes stray into those areas should really focus on uh, establishing what is good quality. And building professionalism, which you've already talked about, 
the professional ethos to always try to do better. Indeed, yes. Now, James Lambert is one of many doctors who have suffered for speaking out against injustices, and the classic example for many of us is Henrik Ibsen's Dr. Thomas Stockman, and he spoke out about the contamination of the water in the spa town in Norway in which he lived, and he was driven out of town for doing so. The mob attacked his house, broke the windows. Is there a moral in your book, given what happened to James Lambert? Should we, as doctors, speak out, or should we remain silent? Well, you won't be surprised that I think we should speak out. Having said that, I would not encourage all doctors to do that. Doctors need, and this would be true for any of the professions, not just doctors, it takes a lot of courage. Uh, You need to really think carefully. And if you are somebody who is quite risk-averse, then be very careful. Also, never rush into speaking out. It's a bit like those email, the, the basic rule, don't send the email at night, sleep on it and send it the next day, um, particularly if it's a resignation one. So um, think hard, think through what the likely consequences might be, obviously discuss it with a confidant, somebody who's perhaps a little older, seen more, more experienced. Um, but in the end, it's, your, it's, it's got to be your decision. I think the other thing I would say is that I make a distinction between what have come to be known as whistleblowers and somebody like James Lambert, who was not a whistleblower. Why do I say that? Well, if I look at whistleblowers and they're absolutely some dreadful experiences people have had in the last 10, 20 years, well documented by Phil Hammond and others. Usually what they are saying is the care here that I am observing and expected to be part of, I do not believe is safe. I am not comfortable being part of it. We do not have enough nurses, doctors, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm being made to discharge a patient prematurely. I can't get a patient in, all those things. In other words, what they are saying is they are not standing up and saying, I think we should transform the system. They're actually quite conservative. They're saying the system needs to be as it is. The status quo needs to be better, more resources, more staff. Fine, that, that that's okay. But that's very different from somebody like Thomas Stockman, you mentioned from the Ibsen play, he wasn't saying that. What he was standing up and saying is, we need change. What Lambert, when you read the novel, as I hope you all will, uh, is saying is, we need change. What Thomas Wakeley was saying is, we need change. They were not arguing for more for their bit of the service. They weren't whistleblowers. They are reformers. And reformers actually have a very different mindset. Uh, Equally risky because, on the whole, people don't like it uh, and those in power don't like it. So, again, be very careful. But if we don't have a certain number of doctors, nurses and others speaking out, then there's little hope for change. Indeed. 
So I'm going to end with two questions that I've been asking everyone. The first is a very personal question. We're talking about doctors as role models and you, for many people, myself included, are a role model. But who are the ones that have inspired you and why? Well, the one who comes to mind uh, is Jonathan Miller. For younger listeners, um, Jonathan Miller is a, a doctor, a Cambridge graduate, uh, and he was one of the four members of a review, satirical review, called Beyond the Fringe, which is seminal. It, it transformed more than just comedy. Um, it was quite revolutionary at its time. And it's still very funny if you can get to uh, find it. I'm sure it's somewhere on the on YouTube or somewhere. Uh, it was Peter Cook, Dudley Moore and Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller, four incredibly talented people, Cambridge Footlight undergraduates. And as a 17-year-old heading through A-levels towards medicine, what I actually really wanted to do was be a film director. And the Nash, I think called the National Film School had just opened. This is on 1968, round about there. But my parents, very wisely, I think, said, well, sort of more or less, do medicine first, <laughs> rather than the high-risk uh, world of, of filmmaking. And, and the person they pointed to, knowing my <laughs> weak spot, as it were, was, well, Jonathan Miller did medicine, and now look what he's doing. And, of course, that was before he went on to direct opera and... You know, but also pursue um, uh, clinical work in neurology. Uh, so I think that kept me on the straight and narrow, which I have no regrets about. So I would say Jonathan Miller was probably the, the person. Years later, I had the good fortune to meet him, and I told him this, and he was just acutely embarrassed, I think, that, uh, that he had had, had this uh, responsibility. Well, I can identify with that. I wanted to do politics, philosophy, economics. My parents also said, do medicine first. And in a way, I've hopefully managed to combine the two in, in some way. My very last question, what advice would you give to someone who's just graduated in medicine and would like to follow in your footsteps? I think have the courage of your convictions, but it does come with risks. So you're in a very privileged position as a doctor. It may not feel like it amongst a lot of the junior doctors today. They may not feel terribly privileged, but they are. Um, that's not to say they haven't got a good case for improvements in their lot. But use that privileged position very judiciously. Think hard before acting, but once you're convinced of the rightness of what it is you want to do, then I'd encourage you to go for it and do it. Nick Black, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by the BMA. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so don't forget to follow us to get notified and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts to help others find us. You can find a link to the transcript of this episode in the show notes and at bma.org.uk slash inspiringdoctors. The interviewees on this podcast are just a selection of those who communicate medicine in fantastic ways. To join the conversation on social media and tell us about doctors whose communication skills inspired you, tag the BMA on Twitter and Instagram and use the hashtag InspiringDoctors. This podcast is hosted by Martin McKee. It is produced and edited by Alex Covey. 
This episode was researched by Martin McKee. Special thanks to our guest, Nick Black, as well as Olivia Clark, Rosie Hogwood, Gemma Hopkins, Susan Law, and Jackie Melman-Wicks. For more information, visit bma.org.uk slash inspiringdoctors.